Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, October 8, 2020. A strange psychological condition caused a young man in the UK to eat nothing but breakfast sausages for most of his life until the intervention of a hypnotist. More artifacts from the Avro Arrow project have been discovered at the bottom of Lake Ontario. And we talk turkey, literally. All of this starts now. The fascinating story out of the UK about a 15-year-old kid who has eaten only sausages almost his entire life. When his mom weaned him off breast milk, he gravitated towards breakfast-style sausages three times a day, every single day. And apparently this is a clinical condition called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Beyond my pay grade to understand, so let's get to the expert. Dr. Lisa Young is the author of Finally Full, Finally Slim. Also a prof with the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University. Dr. Young, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So about this condition, uh, APHRID, I guess, is the acronym. Uh, what's that all about? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, basically, it is a form of an eating disorder, and it usually is, you know, kids, where they have very picky eating and very highly selective eating habits, and they avoid certain foods. They often avoid either textures or colors, or they only eat one food, like in this case where he was only eating the sausages. And um, it's more common in boys, and it could affect up to 5% of kids, it's thought. Wow. All right. And so uh, are there specific food groups that these young boys or kids gravitate towards uh, almost exclusively, or can it be anything? It could be anything. So it could be that they don't like certain colors, or they don't like certain textures, or they only want to eat this one food, um, or this one food is associated with stomach problems when really if they go to the doctor, nothing is wrong. So it's not an organic problem where there's a physiology, where there's a body problem going on. Well, is it a psychological disorder? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So it's in a class of an eating disorder, basically, um, for kids. And it could progress into adulthood if it's not treated. Um, Sometimes they outgrow it, but it is something that is fairly uncommon, but more common than you would think because it manifests itself very differently for different people. There are also people for whom uh, any other type of food stuff can cause them uh, great nausea, even to the point where they're vomiting. And uh, as I understand it, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. But what's happening, John, is that they're not, there's really nothing physiologically wrong with them. So it's rooted all in the psychology. And um, because it is a phobia, often hypnosis could possibly work because what it does is it works with the child's unconscious. So to possibly bring about change. 
So what's happening is that it's very possible that as an infant or as a young child, some kind of negative experience occurred that they're not even aware of. And so the therapist often will work with the child's unconscious to try to bring about change. But those stomach aches and the nauseous and everything else that they manifest, there is nothing physiologically wrong. Dr. Young, a tricky question, but uh, if a parent were to indulge their child uh, just, you know, for the sake of uh, maybe placating them, would that be something akin to child abuse? Well, you know, I don't know that I'd go out and call it child abuse, but I think you do need to take this seriously. And very often, we don't take eating disorders or disordered eating as seriously as we would heart disease, cancer, or something, some other condition. All right. Uh, and so what you ought to do, uh, this will be the final word to parents if they've got a child. Uh, it's somebody in the formative years, by all indications, and they've exhibited signs of this or any eating disorder. What's the best route forward? The best route forward is to speak to a therapist. That would be before you jump on hypnosis or before you jump on something, the first thing would be to really speak to a licensed therapist, a psychologist, a social worker, and somebody who specializes in the treatment of kids and who's knowledgeable about disordered eating. All right. Uh, We want ordered eating, and uh, I'm assuming that is really the overarching theme of Finally Full, Finally Slim, your book. Would I be correct in saying that? Absolutely, and thank you, yes. You got it. Well, uh, people can look that up for further reference. Finally Full, Finally Slim, Dr. Lisa Young, professor with the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University. Really appreciate your joining us this afternoon. Sorry for the interruption. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Something else that's uh, really ended up in Davy Jones' locker that uh, has now been discovered fairly recently. It's one of the great aviation mysteries of the last two generations. One of the test models and the more recent vintage of the Avro Arrow, which is uh, symbolizing, I guess, Canadian ingenuity, but it was uh, kiboshed by the Diefenbaker regime, and uh, that's now still considered Black Friday, where what could have been is all just a matter of conjecture. But on this matter of the Avro Arrow uh, test models, Jock Williams has joined us to explain the significance, Global News Radio's aviation expert. Jock, how are you keeping? Long time no talk. Yeah, too bad. Uh, great day for talk radio, nonetheless. <laughs> Uh, by the way, this Avro Arrow story, the reclamation of the test models, uh, you follow that story at all? Yes, I've been following it for years. It's funny. Uh, I've been associated with it in one form or another since I was about 14 years of age. So, Wow. Uh, and so I found it fascinating. Now, we know the Avro Arrow, and uh, this was Canada's high watermark for developing you know, aviation technology, and uh, as I said, what might have been. But they were actually testing this model and firing it from... I guess a a test range or a a military base in Prince Edward County. So tell us how that was used and how these things were fired out into the lake. Well, at the end of World War II, Canada had a whole bunch of uh, Army Reserve light anti-aircraft units, and they would do their training. The ones from Ontario would do their training at a place called Point Petrie or Point Petrie uh, on the south end of Prince Edward County. Uh, near Wellington, if you know where that is. But yep. but anyway, uh, that came to an end in about 1959, something like that. But it, but that was also the time of the Avro Aero development. So because there was a range there with launch facilities and so on, Avro must have made a deal with the Canadian Army to use their range and to fire repeatedly, fire models of uh, 
the Avro Arrow in various configurations out over the lake. And they must have had a television monitoring system that would watch the model as it was flying through the air, and they would see where it was vibrating inappropriately or where it was flexing. So even in those days, they were pretty good with just black and white TVs and so on. So they did this for a long, long time, and nobody thought a thing of it. And then some guy (laughs) said to himself, hey, it'd be fun to find some of those. So people began to look on the bottom of Lake Ontario, and they had a pretty decent idea. They knew what heading the the rockets were fired on, and they knew uh, what the strength of the rockets were. They were 59,000 pounds thrust, so, I mean, they'd get a a model going Mach 2 anyway. And uh, so they began to look for them. But but they're only, these models are maybe six feet long and and five feet wide, and and a lot of them broke up, as it turns out, when they hit the water because they're going pretty fast. So, but they have found a few, and it, it's funny, I was just reading a history book about a ship called HMS Speedy by a guy called Dan Buchanan, and he mentions that the, the, the Speedy was a ship that was sought after, and they've just recently found it. It went missing in the early 1800s with about 30 people on board, all prominent citizens of York and, uh, and the villages that became Toronto. Anyway, uh, in finding, in attempting to find the wreck of this HMS Speedy, they did find several, sadly in very bad condition, but several of these models. So uh, they they will appear somewhere in a museum, but the, the Canadian government has this brilliant program whereby if you find something on the bottom of Lake Ontario, you can't just bring it back up. Now, I understand why. There'd be people robbing historic sites. But in this case, when you find something and it's going to be real hard to find a second time, maybe they could give you a bit of a buy and just say, you got to turn it in until we've studied it, and then we'll give it to you. But but anyway, as recently as this summer, I believe several of them were found. I don't know specifically wh- whether you're referring to a specific article or what, but I because I was a cadet and went and shot the anti-aircraft guns at this firing site, I've been, as I say, when I was about 14, I've been aware of it ever since. It was quite a thing to sit in the seat of one of these anti-aircraft guns and spin the wheels and make the gun turn around and try to, to stay ahead of a target that you were shooting at that was going by, oh, you know, half a mile out over the lake. Wow. Uh, we didn't hit many. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, visions of Jane Fonda in Hanoi. Uh, yeah, that's anyway, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> again, Jock Williams, uh, he's our aviation expert at Global News Radio. So in this test site where they were firing these things over into the lake, yep. I, I read, because well, I was curious, why, why would you dump this debris into the lake? Why wouldn't you do it in a field or in some kind of a wind tunnel or something else to see whether it vibrates, where the weak points may yeah. be, if the rivets well, come apart? You know, we we didn't have a supersonic wind tunnel in Canada. I'm not entirely certain that we still do have one. Uh, we had one for a while, I think, at the National Research Council at Uplands Airport in Ottawa. But it was a lot easier and a lot cheaper to get these war surplus boosters from the American Army, mount the aero model on the front, and people weren't much worried about the ecological uh, problem. I mean, let's face it, these things weighed maybe 40 pounds, and uh, they weren't really going to pollute Lake Ontario to any scale. So so people felt quite free to fire the things out. They They had already captured the information on this television film, and so they they got the data that they needed to have on the various shapes of wing and and so on but um people didn't think anything about that one one thing it would have been terribly dangerous to fire the things landwards i mean because they came to earth i knew not where you know 
Right, <laughs> so and, and that, Mach 2 or whatever. But yeah. so, so how far out into the lake might they be? I, I would suspect that they could be as far as five or six miles out in the lake, and maybe I'm off on that. When you fire a thing at Mach 2 at a 45-degree angle, which would be the angle for the greatest range, uh, you're going to get some good results out of it. So it, it could be that it's 10 or 15 miles out in the lake. I'm really not certain. I'll try to find out. I've got, I've got this book right in front of me, but I wasn't really looking at that sort of the data at the time. But 10 or 15 miles wouldn't be inappropriate for a, a 40 or 50 thousand pound thrust rocket is there any archival relevance here or significance to finding these pieces not really i mean the 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 avro arrow story has become part of canadian mythology i mean the truth is it was a highly advanced aircraft but from the moment it was born it was born too late uh, it was designed to to hunt down fleets of incoming Soviet bombers, but by the time the plane became available, the Soviets would not have been sending their airplanes in fleets. They would have been sending them as singles across the the Arctic. And we would have had to have hundreds of these Avro Arrows, and they were dreadfully expensive. They were big, they were unmaneuverable, but it was a fascinating airplane. It probably would have had a world speed record and a world time to climb and a world altitude record and maybe some more things. But that was just going to be more of an embarrassment for the the Diefenbaker liberals who had to cancel it. They canceled it on the advice of the relevant air marshals who said, we we can't afford this, it's a white elephant, and it, frankly, it has no job any longer. But the Canadian people have just fixated on the fact that it was a pretty spiffy airplane. And I, I sure wish I'd flown it, but uh, not not thinking that it would be particularly useful. It just would be fun. All right. Well, a vanity project. I never really heard that interpretation. Uh, well, I, I got it right straight from John Diefenbaker. He came flying with me a couple times in my Tiger Moth and and we discussed this and he said he took full responsibility for canceling it because he was the prime minister but he only did it on the advice of his experts who were the air marshals and so on and while he felt very sorry he still believed he had done the right thing and i, I believe he had too interesting because uh the way it had been parlayed as you full well know uh he's been wearing the goat horns over that aborted <laughs> uh mission there with it uh low all these years but jock you've come here to set the record straight uh really good to talk again i appreciate it hope you're keeping well good talking to you john we'll talk to you again you got it as always jock williams global news radio's aviation expert it is the thanksgiving weekend albeit this one's going to be somewhat different we know that as a matter of course because of covid19 We've been told uh, single households only. If there's a single individual, maybe uh, they can join you. But other than that, they want to really tamp it down and keep it to a number under 10, which for a lot of people seems impractical with the large families. Sometimes the kids are coming home from school, college, or university. This is, by the way, uh, usually the weekend where we have the great turkey drop, which means that your son or daughter comes back from school and announces to their high school sweetheart who went to a different school that they're no longer interested. That's what happens. It's around that time of the year. Not to be confused with the Les Nesman turkey drop from WKRP. Uh, he thought turkeys could fly. A lot of us has uh, have misconceptions about turkeys. Now, we know that this is the season where they're at in uh, large numbers. Ditto for Christmas. Something like 2.5 million turkeys were sold last year around Thanksgiving and 2.7 million at Christmas. The numbers are different this year and uh, we know COVID is one such reason. Let's find out just how it's impacted the business. Brian Ricker has joined us on the line. Turkey farmer in Dunville, Ontario, also chairs the Turkey Farmers of Ontario. Brian, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Wish times were better. How are you? How are things in the industry? Uh, well, pretty 
good. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me, uh, John. It's a, a real pleasure to speak on the radio shows these days and get people a warm and fuzzy feeling about Thanksgiving again. Well, let's hope we can accomplish that. I mean, uh, what are you noticing about the numbers of birds being, I guess, sold wholesale or uh, however, you know, you, you, you've got to raise them in anticipation of however many are going to be needed. Uh, what's going on? How have you been impacted? Uh, well, uh, since COVID hit, we really took a hit on our, our full-service deli and the places like Subways. Uh, that really impacted us in a huge way. And so we had to cut production 15% in order to try to accommodate that. And uh, so we also cut live price 5% in order to help our processors with the extra processing costs, higher labor costs, higher PPE costs, and, uh, you know, higher absenteeism uh, at their plants, a lot, of, a lot of issues at the processing facilities. And so we've been doing our best to accommodate those issues. And so uh, with the cut in production, we're certainly hopeful that uh, we'll be able to sell the turkeys that we've been growing for the last few months in anticipation of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so far, uh, you know, orders look okay. They're off a little bit. Uh, but what we're finding is turkey roasts sales are up quite strongly. Turkey portions are up because uh, smaller get-togethers, you know, you buy a little mm. roast and you cook that up for your small family and not very many leftovers for a day or two. And uh, so we're hopeful that people will, will still buy some turkey product uh, or a small bird. And, uh, of course, the big bird sales are just non-existent. Yeah, so nobody's ordering a 20-pound bird then. Exactly. They're just those sales. And a lot of those sales in the past would go to the food service area, the restaurants, the small uh, mom-and-pop restaurant who would buy a turkey or two like that a week, and then they would make turkey dinners, and they would make turkey uh, club sandwiches. And, of course, uh, those, those have been impacted in a, in a nasty way. They've had to close uh, their doors. They've had to, uh, they've had to you know, cut in half or cut by two-thirds uh, the people that they're allowed to serve every day at their, at their little uh, restaurants. And that adds up all across Canada, and that really impacts us in a negative way for our uh, for our twenty pound turkey sales, for sure. Again, with Brian Ricker, turkey farmer in Dunville, also chairs the Turkey Farmers of Ontario. So the bigger birds got somewhat of a reprieve, I guess, like getting a call for clemency from the governor or something. What do you do with those birds? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately, uh, we have to put them in the freezer and hope to uh, hope to get them sold down down the road. So our freezer stocks have been higher. Uh, lately, uh, due to the COVID uh, situation. And uh, so very disappointing. Our processors have to put them in the freezer and pay cold storage on those birds. And so uh, uh, that's another reason that we have been uh, lowering our live price a little bit in order to help compensate the processors for their extra cost on not being able to sell those turkeys as they normally would have been. Wow, a volatile situation on slim margins as well. Your supply managed though, right? Yeah, so the growers are supply managed. And, and so what that means is we try to manage supply with demand and uh, we come to an agreement on live price with our processors on, on a price that will uh, usually uh, allow us to uh, make a profit each time we ship turkeys. Uh, the problem is our processors are not supply managed. Uh, they, uh, are, they are taking the market risk. And so... Uh, uh, they have told us they've been struggling a lot, especially the last few months through the COVID situation. 
And uh, their profits uh, are certainly, uh, they're actually losing money. And they've been telling us that for several months. And well, so, yeah, uh, on, on yeah. so many fronts, Brian, I mean, home consumption at Thanksgiving, as you say, with a smaller group in the household, uh, it may just be a real small bird or you know, turkey parts, the big ones are not going to be eaten. And uh, then you've also got restaurants, uh, many of which are, you know, fading now. Uh, How long does it take to raise a turkey, uh, you know, from a chick, I guess, right up to a point where it's, uh, you know, ready to be processed as a a meal or, you know, you're selling it as a 12 or a 14 pounder? So the turkeys that I grow on my farm are about five kilos, and it takes me about 10 weeks to grow those. And so... uh, so the lag time is, is a lot, but uh, the birds that are actually larger, that, that are 35 pounds or, or more like uh, 15 kilos, uh, they take more like 16, 17 weeks. And so, uh, you know, it's three months before, you know, and then you order that bird, takes a month in the hatchery. And so, uh, so you know, from the time you get it out of the hatchery to the time you get it to the processing plant, you're looking at four months. So, it, it's you know, you have to plan a year and ahead. To get everything lined up so it is very tricky to make this all work well yeah if we project even just two and a half months out a relatively close horizon uh, that's christmas uh, are you making plans how are you adjusting accordingly for those so yeah we we have uh we have lowered the number of birds that we have allowed growers to produce in canada and in ontario ontario by 15 percent and so we've cut production in order to compensate for uh, for lower sales. And, and we won't know if that was the right number for probably six more months. Until, until January, we find out how many turkeys actually sold through at Christmas and Thanksgiving. Then we'll know if we grew the right number. And we hope we are. But it's, it's, it's a real mystery because we don't know how that'll turn out, right? Yeah, well, not just the right number, evidently, the right weight, you were saying. I mean, I'm hearing right now the smaller birds, maybe 10 pounds less, uh, are really at a premium. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that they sell through. I, I was at the supermarket last week, and I did see uh, that there were not very many small birds left in the bunker, but there were large birds. And so that's what you get, right? When, when you have a smaller get-together, the smaller birds are sold out, and the big birds are kind of maybe all, all that's left pretty soon. Hey, Brian, tell me, I mean, uh, you know, they say this with lobsters. You only want about a pound and a half. Anything more than that isn't as delicate. Uh, how does that apply with turkeys? What's the optimum weight if you really want to be in the sweet spot? Is there a weight? Uh, actually, uh, I, I don't. I, I know that uh, the five-kilo birds that I grow, uh, we, we buy them uh, back from the grocery store, and, and they are quite fine. Uh, in the past, we, would, we, would, we have bought 20-pound birds before, and uh, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, as long as they're cooked properly and not overcooked, uh, I've found that they, they taste pretty much the same to me. Yeah, you know, when you say overcooked, because that uh, is one of those things, it's like pork chops as well. It can be notoriously uh, dry. You know, you just got to find the right way of going about it. I have a, I have a friend who deep fries them, you know, uh, in a kettle drum. He just pours it into the oil, swears by these yep. things. But I guess that's one of the more popular ways, I guess, of doing a bird these days. Absolutely. I have a deep fryer. My wife will hardly let me use it. She's afraid I'm going to burn the place down. I had a good, I had a good friend who dropped his turkey in there, and he forgot to shut the burner off, and, and it exploded and burned his eyebrows off and singed his hair and, and showed us a picture of his garage all black. And so my wife's uh, really nervous of my, uh, my uh, 
my cooking habits. So I, I, I've heard that you're, you've got a barbecue whisperer on tomorrow, and I bought yep. a new barbecue, and so it's got a nice meat thermometer that's digital that mm. goes in there, so you'll know when it's 165 degrees inside the bird, and then you know you got your right temperature. But I'm going to tune in at 5 o'clock tomorrow and listen to your barbecue whisperer, and I'm going to fire up my brand-new grill here and give oh, that a try. You. Yeah, well, it's uh, that time, too. And, of course, if you could only come up with a turkey, which is almost exclusively dark meat, in our family, for whatever reason, we're kind of the outliers, the anomaly. Uh, we're all big into the dark meat and the thighs and the legs and things like that. So, uh, <laughs> sure. by the way, yep. can you ever do that? Is there something that you feed them special that would make a turkey, you know, uh, more white meat or uh, more robust than the white meat uh, versus the dark? No, we are, our, our diets are mainly a corn and soybean diet. And mm. uh, and it, so the, the, the kind of feed you feed them doesn't change the color of meat. The white meat typically comes from the breast of the bird, and the dark meat comes from the thighs and, and the drumsticks. And uh, you can't really change that by feeding the bird. Uh, all right. Well, I've been taken to uh, turkey burgers of yeah. late. Yeah, turkey burgers are also irresistible. Uh, it's good to talk turkey. Great. As a matter of fact, I wish you the best uh, during the season. I know it's rough sledding, and hopefully things will improve. And then on to uh, the Christmas run as well so you can get back up to speed. Thanks so much for weighing in this afternoon, Absolutely. Brian. Absolutely. Thank you very you much it. for the call, John. Appreciate it. You, you yep. got it for sure. Brian Rickard, turkey farmer in Dunville, Ontario, also chairs the Turkey Farmers of Ontario. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, October 8, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 